We are in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. This may sound familiar to you, and it should. Verses 1 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Let us uh, consider it this morning. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand that fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes, his eyes and looked and behold behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come now before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the strength and power of your Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts to receive your word this morning, that we would follow the example of Abraham, that we would hear your word and obey, that we would be honest with ourselves this morning when we are faced with difficult commands that you would give us grace to obey them, that you would give us strength, Lord, to put to death remaining sin, and that you would help us, Lord, to walk in step with the commands of your heart. Lord, we pray that you would uh, be with us now. You would help me, Lord, even as I preach, to decrease so that you may increase and be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we return now to our study 
in the book of Genesis and to the consideration of the life of Abraham, the father of faith. And today, uh, that is, uh, you and I together, we have a, a unique opportunity uh, to return to a passage that we considered last week. Uh, it is not very often that, that I, as preacher or preachers, get the opportunity to, to review the same sermon, if you will, that I preached last week or that I preached before uh, the next week. And so for me, I see it as a unique opportunity to to go over some things that I wish I would have said last week and also to clarify some things that I think uh, maybe were not clear last week. As many of you know, if you were here last week, my my helper, my computer uh, was being uncooperative with me last week. And the Lord did carry us by his grace, carried us through the first 14 verses of the 22nd chapter. Uh, however, when the sermon was complete, I believe that I I displayed a, a tremendous amount of disappointment. And I also believe that you displayed a tremendous amount of support. While I thank you, and I say this again, I thank you for, uh, and I thank God. Thank you, and I thank God, I thank God, I thank you, for a loving and supportive church. I, I did some investigation later on that night. And I wanted to have some conversations to find out how many of you actually got the main point of the sermon from last week. Uh, it may be that the main point is missed often. But last week, I was more intentional in finding out if you had actually gathered the main point from last week. And what I did gather was that I think the main point was missed from last week. Uh, therefore, I thought it would be a good opportunity to review this sermon uh, so that the point, the main point from last week is clearly understood. And then maybe that we could take this sermon a step further. Let me say, uh, in preparation for this week, I did take this a step further. I took it so much further that I created a whole other sermon. Uh, Therefore, that sermon will be next week, uh, because this would be a two-hour sermon if I did everything that I wanted to do this morning. So uh, the Lord is gracious to both of us, right? You will not have to sit through a two-hour sermon, and I will not have to preach a two-hour sermon, though I don't think I would mind it. Um, we will review some things that I think are necessary for review today, and then we will get into the newer information next week. So this morning, we are only going to cover two points and Lord willing, we will be able to gather the main point of all that needs to be gathered and understood today. So number one, our first point, Abraham's great test and response. If you're taking notes, Abraham's great test and response. This will be verses one through six. Let's read verse number one. Now it came about after these things that God, and there's the word there, tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Brothers and sisters, the Lord God comes to his servant Abraham, and it's important for us to reiterate. I'm going to say again these kinds of things so that you'll know I said this last week. It's been at least 20 to 25 years since God has spoken to Abraham. He calls him to obey 
the most difficult command of his life. And let's say that Abraham has known difficult commands in his life. Uh, the life of Abraham has not been such uh, that has been absent of difficult commands. Let's go back and consider the very first command. Genesis chapter 12. Let's turn there. Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land of which I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Brothers and sisters, consider the Lord God commanded Abraham to leave his country, to leave his kindred. And if we think for a moment that that is an easy task, it is not. And it was not. Imagine you where you are now to leave your country and to leave your family. As much problems as we have with the United States it is, I believe, much better than living in another country. To leave your country, and, and, and the same for others who are coming to this country, to leave their country, to leave their family. This is not an easy task. To leave all that you know, to leave all that is familiar to you and go. And listen, not go somewhere. In Abraham's case, go, I don't know where. And yet Abraham, the father of faith, he is called, believed God and obeyed God. We shall consider this passage specifically next week in greater detail. Uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But it is the initial call of God that contained commands. The command was, leave your country and kindred. The command is, go to a land. And also... Believe these promises. These are all difficult things. It was the initial call of God. And it is, it is also the, the initial foundations of the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll talk about next week. Again, we shall uh, consider this again next week. But, but it is important for us to note this was, was not the command given to Abraham in Genesis 22 is not the only difficult command he's ever had. Uh, we said this last week. He's had to send away a son already. And now God is commanding him to put another son to death. Brothers and sisters, difficult commands that Abraham obeys. Send away the, the, the mother of your firstborn son. A difficult command. And yet Abraham obeys. I, I think it's important for us to note that Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he informs the reader that what we are about to read is a test, right? Verse 22, verse, or chapter 22, verse 1. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Therefore, from the outset, we know more than Abraham does. Let's pause and think about that. From the very beginning of this chapter, we actually know more than Abraham knows. We know more about what's going on than Abraham knows about what's going on. Abraham, though, was trusting God. Now, 
it's very easy to trust God when you know what's going on. Right? It's very easy to trust God when, as we have the privilege of knowing Genesis to Revelation, Abraham did not have that privilege. Abraham did, could not turn, as I said last week, could not turn to Genesis 22 and say, oh, this is what's taking place, no problem. Abraham was trusting the Lord with his hand in the hand of the Father. Listen, when a horrifying command comes to him. Not just a command. A horrifying command. Uh, Pastor Zay said this last evening, uh, last week, uh, last Lord's Day evening. I can't imagine being asked to sacrifice my beloved son. And he is my beloved son. I can't imagine God asking me to kill my son Nazareth. Or for you daughters, mothers who have daughters or son or fathers who have daughters, imagine, offer, son, we're not going to kill you, don't worry. He looked like, what's happening? Uh, or for you husbands or fathers who have daughters or for you mothers who have daughters and sons, can you imagine offering up your son as God has commanded you? Abraham was walking by faith. Take your son whom you love, Isaac, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to one of the mountains of which I will show you. Again, we are not incorrect in saying this was a horrifying command. Listen, nowhere in all of Scripture does God command another one of his servants or anyone else for that matter to sacrifice their children. This is the one and only place. It was a confusing command. Listen, one that to Abraham... Possibly, I'm sure, it made absolutely no sense. To Abraham, it made no sense. To Abraham, the believer, it made no sense. And this is often what the life of the believer is summed up as. Often, our lives are summed up as this. I don't know now, but I shall know later. That is often the, the summary of our lives. I don't know what's going on now. But I will know later. God knows what's happening. I don't know what's happening. God knows the purpose of this. I don't know the purpose of this. But I will trust him nevertheless. I don't know now. But I shall know later. The commands of God are often strange. And I know that that for some of us who have come to this church for a, a length of time. You have often been confronted with seemingly strange commands from God. Right? Sometimes the commands of God seem to be more against us than they are for us. Do you know the scriptures say that God is strange? The scriptures say in Isaiah 28, 21, to do his deed. Strange is his deed. That is to do his command. His commands are strange to do his work. Alien is his work. Sometimes the thing he's calling us to is often alien often, most often, alien to us. You want me to do what? You are calling me to to go where? Now, at this point, I would like to exhort you. Dear ones, I would like to exhort you about the commands of God. Was this command from God strange? Yes. Was this command from God horrifying? Yes. Was there a purpose to this command? Yes. 
There is nothing that comes from God that is meaningless, purposeless. Uh, the command that came from God was meaningful, was purposeful. Uh, it made no sense to Abraham. It was a senseless command in Abraham's mind. In the providence of God, it may have seemed to be conflicting with the promise of God. It was a command that was completely nonsensical to Abraham, but made absolute sense to God. Amen. It makes absolute sense in the the scope of redemptive history. The command made absolute sense in relationship to the covenant that God made with Abraham that we'll talk about last next week in relationship to the typology that would be that would be displayed here in this chapter. But at that moment, it made no sense to Abraham. Now, brothers and sisters, we know, again, all of these things because we have the privilege of the full revelation of God. Abraham does not. He must truly walk by faith. He must walk in the knowledge of all that he has learned about God thus far. That's what he's walking in. Uh, what is causing Abraham to take one step in front of the other? First, it is God, the Holy Spirit leading him, right? Uh, what is causing Abraham to obey God? It's, it's everything that he's learned about God up until this point. Are you with me? Everything that Abraham has learned about God up until this point, he is taking one more step by faith based upon Spirit of God and also everything that he knows about God thus far. It is essential for Abraham to learn. It is essential for us to learn, to know that he and we can trust God, not because God's commands are suitable to us. Does that make sense? Not, or, not because God's commands make us feel good. We don't obey the commands of God because we like them. We don't obey the commands of God because they happen to to be comfortable for us. There are churches filled this morning. Uh, we call them mega churches. And they are, they are often filled with, with many, many people because things that come from the pulpit are sweet tooth sermons. They make you feel good. They make you feel comfortable. They make you feel like you can run through a brick wall. The command that came to Abraham was not a feel-good command. Not a comfortable command. Not a command that made him feel like he could jump over mountains and leap uh, buildings in a single bound. The command didn't make him feel like Superman. It made him feel like less than a man. And he obeys the command. Why? For no other reason that it's from God. And because God is God. For no other reason, because God is God. Listen, not even because God has showed himself faithful time and time again. That is a helpful point. God has shown himself faithful again and again and again. But Abraham obeys this command from God because God is God. And he belongs to God. 
And if he belongs to God, then he must obey the commands of God or else he doesn't belong to God. And God gives him a horrifying command. What is he doing? Well, a number of things, but he is stripping Abraham bare. Stripping him bare of all possible interpretations of what God might be doing because Abraham could not figure out what God might be doing. There is no, oh, I see what you're doing, God. Don't you, and I like to do that often. Oh, I see what you're doing. As if we could predict or uh, interpret perfectly the, the providences or the workings of God. I see what you're trying to do. There was none of that for Abraham. I don't see what you're trying to do. I have no idea what you are trying to do. It's completely a mystery to me. Uh, Abraham is called to believe and trust, not even because of future blessing. You see that? He doesn't say, uh, uh, sacrifice your son. There will be future blessing. We'll see this in the 15th through 19th verses. There will be future blessing, but that's not said to Abraham at the moment. We will see that this command is connected to the Abrahamic covenant, but Abraham doesn't know that at the moment. God is not saying to Abraham, Abraham, hey, there's one more thing I forgot to add to the covenant. Let, let me say that right. There's one more thing I'm going, not forgot, because one more thing I'm adding to this covenant, Abraham. Let's ratify the covenant. That, mean, that means complete the covenant by you giving me your son. He tells him that afterwards. Not before. There is no possible way Abraham knows what's going on. He is only obeying because God has said so. Not because of future blessing yet and not because of present joy. Because there was no present joy in what he was going to do. But because God is God and God can be trusted. Now, brothers and sisters, what is your response when you hear a command from the Lord? Now, let me give you a caveat. That is a condition, right? Let me say not a command that you hear audibly from the Lord. We believe that God does speak. And the way that God speaks to his people today is through his word. Uh, we read this morning in our catechism that it is the only certain, only certain, not what I think he's telling me because that's not certain. This is the only certain rule of faith and obedience. It's the only thing that can be trusted. Therefore, we do not believe that God speaks to us in the way that he spoke to these in the scriptures. You may believe God is leading you in a certain direction. That's fine. That's all a matter of discernment. As you live in light of God's word, would this please God according to what he said in his word? I think it might. I hope I'm going to step out in faith. But that is not God audibly speaking to you. And there are a, a, a many great problems with believing that God is still right now speaking to you as he has in days past. If you would like to talk more about that, we can do that afterwards. Now, with that caveat made... What is your response when you hear a command from the scriptures, which is God speaking? When you hear a command from the Lord, what is your response? Let me say it this way. What is your response when you hear the teachings from God's word from this pulpit? So we've gone God's word 
What is your response? Let's bring it narrower down, more narrow, closer to home. What is your response when God's word is taught? What is your response when God's word is taught from this pulpit? Are you a Berean who receives the message of God with all eagerness? Are you a Berean who gladly, joyfully receives God's word? And look what else they did. Do you also examine it for yourself? Is today the only day that you will be fed God's word? Will you uh, be a are you a good student of God's word? We can all agree that the command that came from God to Abraham was difficult. How do you respond to difficult commands? When the the command from the Lord comes or a particular teaching from the, the, the pulpit comes and it makes you uncomfortable. Have you been there? Have you ever uh, been sitting where you're sitting? I have. Let me say this. When I began our sermon, I said this would be a, a, benef- a, 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 a beneficial sermon for you and for me. So we're all sitting together. We're, we're learning this together. Okay, I'm in your shoes as well. Have you ever heard a sermon sitting where you're sitting? And as the sermon was coming to your ears, it made you absolutely uncomfortable. You wondered who's been talking to him about me. And why is he talking to them right now about me? Right? I've been there. Let me say every Lord's Day, it's about all of us. Do not sit there and say, he's picking on me today. No. It's not me. When God's word comes and it comes faithfully, it's not the preacher. It's God through the preacher speaking to the hearer. Let us not be offended and say, I'm leaving. He talked about me today. If it makes you uncomfortable, ask yourself this. If we're all honest with ourselves. Uh, Brother Ray, could you please turn the the AC on a little bit? Are you all hot? Okay, maybe I'm the one. Please turn it. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Why does this make me uncomfortable? When we're hearing it, why does this make me? If we're honest with ourselves, I talked to uh, some of the sisters last week during our our fellowship meal, and I had this conversation with them. Why does this make me uncomfortable? What is it about this teaching or what he's saying that I don't like? And be honest with yourself. Here's some things you should ask. Is there a specific tradition that I'm holding on to? That's making me so uncomfortable right now. It's challenging everything I thought I knew was true. Ask yourself that. Is there something that, or is there something that I've studied myself and I truly disagree from the scriptures? Or am I arguing from a personal point of view? From, listen to this one, an emotional point of view. I just don't like that. I don't have a I don't have a, a leg to stand on from God's word. I just don't like that. Well, why not? I just don't like it. Also ask yourself, if this is God's word, and if it's taught in this church, it is God's word, am I willing to change? Or will I continue to hold on to this? Listen, let me help you. When God's word comes and it makes you uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable. It is revealing remaining sin. 
And it is also God's way of sanctifying us. That is, uh, setting us apart and also preparing us for glory. So when God's word comes and we say, don't like it, don't want it, don't want to hear it, I reject it. It's really like us saying, that's my sin. You can't have that one. And if you keep preaching that way, I'll go somewhere else where I can pull out my sin and play with it in the church. They let me play with my sin over there. People have left. People leave churches all the time for those reasons. They just don't like, they just don't like God's word. Not you. You're all holy and not just churches, this church. Let me give you an example. This is one of many examples. And Pastor Zay uh, was praying it this morning so providentially. This is just one doctrinal example. And I could bring up a myriad of others. When we began to move, remove our Wednesday night services, some of you have been around maybe that long, we removed our Wednesday night services and we only began to meet on the Lord's Day because we became convinced that this day has been set apart by God in his word as the unique day of worship unto the Lord and that we could keep people accountable to this day. We could not keep you accountable to Wednesday because it's not the Lord's day. We became convinced by the scriptures that this day is the new Christian Sabbath. We even did six sermons giving all the evidences from Old and New Testament of why this is the, the Christian Sabbath. All the biblical evidence. I think the pastors, they even preached once. It was seven sermons, I think, total that this is the Christian Sabbath. And listen, Many people were offended and also left this church. Listen, I could do more doctrinal things, but let's just focus on this one since we're all here. They left not because they could defend their position. Not because they could say, I have contrary evidence to what you are saying. But rather because it shook up their normal routine of Sunday fun. It, it actually cut into their extended weekend of what they thought. You mean I can't have a birthday party? Well, who is to be more celebrated on this day? You or Christ? This day is the day that we celebrate Christ. This day, as Pastor Day was praying, is the day that most represents the eternal state. Ask yourself, when birthdays come, when the game is on, or when any other event is taking place, and the NBA Finals are coming up, I will need the Lord's help. Who am I commanded to celebrate on this day? Who am I commanded to cheer on this day? God. The problem is, we want to say, no, but, but, but there's something I want to do. And here's how we, we, we try to justify it. Well, will I go to hell if I do it? That's not, a good, that's not a good way to reason. It's the wrong question to ask. Brothers and sisters, there is a problem that we must ask ourselves. And we must ask ourselves if we are a part of the problem. People like the idea 
of God's word as long as it conforms to their lives. As long as it's suitable for them. Even now, some of us, as we're hearing God's word, I'm getting uncomfortable. Why? Why are we being uncomfortable? Have I studied enough to to argue against it? Do, Do I care enough to obey God's word? Or will I live how I want in spite of what God says? Will I take my sin and say, nope, mine. Can't have it. I remember our brother John saying, uh, for those who were arguing, why would you not want to join with the saints, though? Okay, I hear what you're saying, but are you saying, I don't want to join with the saints? Is that is that your argument, though? That I just want to stay home if I want to? Fine. But you're disobeying a command from God. And you have no rebuttal. You have no good argument against it. Do you think Abraham was tempted to reject this command from God? He was a man, a man of flesh and blood. Do you think Abraham was tempted to say, not my son? You're not taking my son. Of course he was. What made him obey? Abraham loved the giver more than the gift. Abraham loved the giver more than the gift. He loved God more than all things that rivaled God in his heart. And listen, There are, um, and more than anything for Abraham, God exposed the one thing that was the biggest rival to him, to God's love, which is his son. And I said last week, it is very easy to make our children idols. To look at them and say, you are just so perfect. You are so, I have to tell my wife every time, he's not. You're not. We are not. We must not fashion God in the way that we want God to be. When we come to God's word, it must always be a posture of humility. I'm bowing before your word. Whatever you say, give me the strength to obey. Help me to put to death remaining sin in my life. We will always be in a state of submission and and always asking for, for grace to obey. Always. Our faith will constantly be test tested. So that it can be proved to be genuine. Even when we don't completely understand it. Why? Because even though our understanding is imperfect, God's word is perfect. Right? So we can bring to God all of our our misunderstandings and say, I don't understand it, but I will obey. That was Abraham's posture. I don't get it, but I will obey. Will that be your posture? I don't get it. But I will obey. uh, Church is not just a hobby. It's who you are or it's not who you are. Uh, My wife said to me, uh, Vody Bauckham just said in some kind of tweet or Facebook statement, uh, if you don't love the church, you don't love Jesus. And she said, what do you think about that? He's right. And I said, she said, there's all these comments of how could you say that? Because it's a knee jerk reaction. It makes us say, how could you say that? Of course I love Jesus. But what did Jesus say? If you love me, obey my commands. And what has Jesus commanded us to do? 
He's commanded us to take the Lord's Supper. Where do we do it? In the church. He's commanded us to baptize. Where do we do it? In the church. He's commanded us to hear his word and that he would be there with us when uh, we are gathering in his name. Where does that happen? In the church. Uh, I could go over command and command and command of what God has promised for his church. That if we reject those things, we don't love God and we don't love his church. We don't love Christ. How do you say I love Jesus? But I ain't going to church. That's not true then. You don't. And that will be hard for people who have grown up thinking that you can do whatever you want as long as you love Jesus and it's all good. It will be hard for them to accept because they're bringing into that the belief a certain tradition. That is wrong. What, listen, uh, those who are like my sister, my mom, and my brother who have been with us through this entire journey, they will tell you we have been constantly cutting down uh, traditional idols. Every step of the way, oh, that's wrong. Praise God. Wow, we've always believed this too. That's gone. Wow, we've always believed. It's been constantly, here's something I've always believed, not true. Here's something I've always believed, not true. And how has it been sliced? By the sword of God's word. Here's what God's word. Are you willing to be that person who will say, God, make me more like you. Here's your word. Here I am. Mold me and shape me for your glory. That will be painful, will it not? Yeah. Because we don't like to believe we're wrong. We want to think we've got it all together. You won't. And you're not going to. None of us until we reach glory. You must always be a student. Even the teacher is still the student. We must never think we've arrived and that we have nothing more to learn. Abraham will, will discover once again that God can be trusted even when God cannot be understood. It's true for all of us. It's true for all of us. And listen, this is a long point, I know. We're not trying to make Christianity harder. Harder than it already is. It's, that, that's not the point. When, when you hear teaching, you say, man, this is hard. This is hard. We're not trying to make it harder. We're trying to help you understand the joy of God's word. The joy of, of obeying his word. The joy of understanding doctrine. The joy of knowing who you are and what you believe. There's joy there. What we know is that God is testing Abraham's faith. Not to see whether or not it's true, but rather to demonstrate to Abraham and to others that God, when he brings someone to faith, God is able to keep them obedient to that faith. Notice Abraham's response. I'm glad I didn't put the second part of this sermon in because we would be here till tomorrow. Verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes. Third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. He rises. He obeys. He doesn't ask. Uh, Tony. God told me this. What do you think? You don't think so either huh? No I'm not going to do it. He doesn't find someone who disagrees. So that he could make himself more comfortable. In not obeying God. He just does what God says. He does not debate. And he does not delay. For three days, they travel. For three days, Isaac is as good as dead. 
but it doesn't happen right away, right? I love this, this note from John Calvin. It says, God, he says, God does not call him to put his son to death immediately, but will allow this idea to rotate in his mind for three days so as to torture all of his own senses. For three days, his son is a walking dead man. For three days, someone else was dead for three days. We'll get to that in a moment. Nevertheless, Abraham did not waver in faith. Verse 5 said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I, the lad, will go over there and worship. We will return. Hebrews 11 gives us a comment on Abraham's mindset. What is Abraham thinking at this time? Hebrews 11 comments on Abraham's mindset. Abraham considered or reasoned that God is able to raise people, his son, even from the dead, which he also received him back as a type. We talked about typology this morning. So he's heard the difficult command. He is obeying the difficult command because he's been given faith to believe and obey. Number two, this is our second point. The great question of the entire Old Testament and the substitute. This is the, well, verse seven. Abraham spoke or Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire in the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. There are several points from last week. This is the main point I believe we might have missed. This the main point that is central to this entire chapter. And there are a number of central points. There's the testing of Abraham, the difficult command given to Abraham, Abraham's faith. All of these are central to this, this chapter. If you're taking notes, here's the main point. Where's the lamb? What's the main point? Where is the lamb? The Abrahamic covenant is a part of that question. Where is the lamb? We'll get to the Abrahamic covenant next week. But the main uh, thrust of this chapter is, where is the lamb? Isaac is going to offer his son. Does he want to? No. Will he? Yes. In obedience to God, in faith in God. Does he wish it could happen some other way? Listen to this. Does he wish that this cup could pass from him? Where have you heard that before? Of course he does. Isaac asked the central question of the entire Old Testament. Moses is writing this passage, and through Moses, that the law of substitu- substitutionary atonement would be established. The sacrificial system would be established. Now, ask yourself this. Why must a sacrifice be offered? What's the purpose of a sacrifice, Right? These animals, what, what, why, why animals, why sacrifices? Uh, interestingly enough, in cultures dating back to many, many years, sacrifice has always been a part of their culture somehow. There seems to be ingrained in man who is made in the image of God, a, a, an understanding that there needs to be some kind of sacrifice offered to God. Why a sacrifice? Because we have sinned. We have rebelled against God's holy law. 
We are deserving of punishment of death for our sins. Uh, Leviticus 4.35 and Leviticus 5.10, the Lord commanded an animal, one without spot, to be offered so that the blood, their blood, could be a temporary, listen to this word, a temporary substitute for our sins. We deserve punishment. Someone must be punished in our place. God commanded that to be an animal. And that animal would be a temporary substitute that would point to the eternal substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system would be established based upon this most important question. Where is the lamb that is to be offered in my place for the punishment that I deserve? Where's the lamb? Where is the lamb? Hebrews 9.22 teaches that without, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. This is a most important question. Someone must pay for my sins. Hebrews 10.4 makes it clear that it was impossible for the, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Bulls, goats, and lambs could, could not save anyone, could they? Uh, they are not sinless, but they were meant to point to the sinless one. They could not save, but they were meant to the point to, they were meant to point to the one who would save. The sacrifice was meant to be an act of faith in the one that it would eventually rescue his people from their sin. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were meant to typify. That means they are meant to be a shadow that pointed to the substance that is the the actual thing the lamb of god that would be offered for the sin of the world the question on the lips of all of those in the old testament was this where is the lamb and what is abraham's response in verse 8 god himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering my son so the two of them walked on together the words that come from abraham's lips are the words that epitomize what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Where's the lamb? That's the point. And it ultimately points to Christ. Notice also, this is the only thing that Isaac has said. All, of all the time that we've been waiting for Isaac, Isaac has something to say. And the one thing that Isaac says is the one thing that will be a constant question throughout the entire Old Testament until the arrival of Christ where is the lamb, my father? He doesn't say anything else in the rest of the chapter. He doesn't say anything else in the next chapter. It isn't until we come to the 24th chapter, at the very end of the chapter, that Isaac even says anything. But what he has to say is of great substance. Where is the lamb? And when Abraham gives him the answer, Isaac does not question it. Like our children do. He completely trusts his father. He seems to know what's taking place. And remember, he's not a child. He's a grown man at this point. Together they walk on, father and son. They finally arrived at the place three days later. He's been a dead man this entire time. Abraham built the altar, verse 9. And there arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. We discussed that there was probably a, a conversation that took place between father and son, and that that was so intimate that it only belongs to father and son. 
And on that day, both of them realized that they needed to die. They both realized that they needed to die on that day. Uh, Abraham and all of his devices. That is Abraham and all of his schemes. Abraham has known, maybe I can figure this out some way. Maybe I can work this out some way. There's none of that now. That has to die today. Isaac has known, God has commanded this, I will submit. Isaac knows that he will die. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. The scriptures make it very clear he's intending to, to, to slay his son. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord. That is, that, that is most likely a Christophany. Meaning, this is most likely a, a pre, or an appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ. Not just an angel, but a pre-incarnate Christ, son of God. Called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. <clears throat> he submitted to the father. The language now I know, again, it was not that God did not already know. The Lord speaks in uh, anthropopathic language, not anthropomorphic, that is physical, but anthropopathic, that is emotional, that is a knowledge. Now I know. But he speaks in this way so that we might learn something of his testing. Again, that he is able to keep those who he has called to faith obedient to that faith. And again, it was so that every ounce of Abraham's remaining sin could be removed, revealed and removed from Abraham. As we read on, we find that there is a ram who was caught in the thicket. The sole purpose of that ram is so that he might be preserved for the day of sacrifice, so that he might serve as a greater symbol of the the greater lamb. Not ram, but greater lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is declared Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Now, let me make also another point. We are not Abraham in this story. Let that sink in for a second. You and I are not Abraham in this story. We are actually Isaac. We are the ones who deserve to be slain. We are all deserving of being slaughtered. But this story has more to do with God providing a substitute. Listen, God providing a substitute for our sins than it has to do for, than it has to do with God providing for the most basic needs of our life. Does that make sense? This has more to do with God providing the Lord who provides Jehovah Jireh uh, in the churches that I came from. That was a big name. That, that was a big, uh, 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 Name of God that they liked to throw around when they talked about money. It was a big name that they liked to throw around when they talked about houses and cars and prosperity. That's not the application of that name. The application of Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, is the one who provides a sacrifice or a substitute. Not the one who gives you money. There is no such God. It is Jehovah Jireh. The God who provides a substitute for our sins. Basic needs are so basic that God rebukes us for even worrying about them. The passage has so much more to do with our, has more to do with our desperate need to be saved from our sin than our selfish need to be rich. 
And we ask the question, where is the lamb? And the Lord himself provides the answer to that question. It is Christ Jesus alone. The ram is caught in the thicket. He is a temporary sacrifice, though, that ultimately points to the eternal sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this morning in our narrow road, we talked about typology. Remember, uh, again, a type is a shadow that points to the substance. The shadow is not the substance. The shadow only points to the substance. And this was meant to be a shadow or a type of Christ. And all throughout this, I wonder if you've seen. Uh, Abraham typifies, represents the father, but not perfectly. Both Abraham and the father are willing to part from their only son. There on the mount, the father gives his son over. And it is a beautiful picture of the father. Our Heavenly Father asking the Son to take the task of rescuing a people for His glory. God the Father loves God the Son. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. The unbegotten One eternally loves the One eternally begotten. But as I said this last week, this typology breaks down. The type is never greater than the antitype. The shadow is never greater than the substance. So it only goes so far, this typology, because Abraham is not the father. And also, Abraham needs a sacrifice for his sins. God does not. Abraham does not crush his son. God will ultimately plunge the sword into his son. The spear will strike his side. Uh, I said this last week, and I had a question about it. It pleased the Lord to crush him. The book, the Bible says in that book of Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to pierce his side. Someone asked, why would it please the father to crush the son? Well, what was, what would be the out, what would be the result, the outworking of the son being crushed? Many sons would be brought to glory. Therefore, it pleased the father to crush the son. He did not spare his son. And how shall he not give us all things if he did not spare his only son? Isaac typifies God the son. He was told to carry the wood up Mount Moriah. Christ carries the cross up Golgotha's hill to the place of sacrifice. Isaac was a willing sacrifice. God the son in eternity past voluntarily elected to give his life for his bride. He said in the servant songs, here I am, Lord, send me. But this also breaks down, doesn't it? Because Isaac, although he was the promised seed of Abraham, was not the seed that would ultimately crush the head of the serpent and the seed through which all the nations would be blessed. Isaac is also not sinless. He could not atone for anyone's sins. Even if he was killed and sacrificed, he could save no one. But Christ could and christ did offer up his life as a sacrifice and it would be sufficient for salvation for the entire world for those who believe for three days isaac is a dead man christ was buried for three days isaac willingly climbs up the altar and so christ also climbs up onto the cross no one takes his life he lays it down willingly 
Christ was sacrificed on that day of atonement. And while he's on the cross, there was no angel to stop the whole thing and say, don't do this. But rather, Christ is encouraged by angels in the Garden of Gethsemane to press on. And on that day, the sword did pierce through the Son of God's side. And there was a carrying out of divine vengeance upon the Son. The vengeance that was belonging to you and I was intercepted by the Son of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. God fulfills the vengeance of the covenant upon his son. And when he rises from the dead, righteousness is given to us. Christ is the greater Isaac. Christ was wounded for our transgressions. There was no ram for Christ. He is the lamb. Christ gave or God gave his son for enemies and for rebels. And listen to this. Uh, the Bible says that, that Isaac and his father come down the mountain. It, it, it is almost as if Isaac in, in Abraham's mind has, is back from the dead. That's like the book of Hebrews says in, in chapter 11, uh, verse 14 or so. As they're walking down the, can you imagine the joy on Abraham's face as he's walking down the mountain? With his son who has been spared. It is almost as if his son has been brought back to life. Because for three days in Abraham's mind he's been dead. He is father and son walking down the mountain with great joy. That substitute has been provided. That my son has been spared. That he was dead. And behold he is alive now. And it pictures the resurrection that we have in Christ Jesus who rose from the dead on the third day, who was alive forever, and who, for us, if we are in Christ, we also, we will rise. Our bodies will be raised one day with Him in glory. We will be full, as, as our catechism says in chapter, in question 40, that we will be raised to life at the resurrection. That we will enjoy the, enjoy the fullness of glory and enjoy God forever. Because the Lord has provided a lamb. Jesus' bonds become our freedom. Isaac was bound. Jesus was bound. And his bonds become our freedom. His death becomes our life. His curse becomes our peace. His shame becomes our glory, our crown of glory in Jesus Christ. The question was answered. Where is the lamb? John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the point, I hope. I hope that you walk away this morning saying, I got the point now. And the command is not meaningless. Next week, we will consider the Abrahamic covenant and how this command is connected to the Abrahamic covenant and to the conclusion of the Abrahamic covenant. And we will do so next week, Lord willing. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the mercy that